6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, How Sure Can We Be? Well, we are in hour 13 of our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. And we're also, we've crossed the divide. In other words, we've been in the Old Testament, admittedly somewhat superficially, but still with a background we hope is helpful. But now we're moving into the New Testament. And we have a couple of sessions here that are sort of the bridge. thought it'd be useful for us to spend an hour to focus on how sure can we be? You know, we talk glibly that uh, most of us in, uh, in this audience uh, uh, believe the Bible, believe Jesus Christ, and that's fine. But how sure are you? How much are you willing to gamble? You're gambling your eternity on that, in effect. How sure can we be? So we're going to focus on that a little bit. William Thompson, who is known as Lord Kelvin in the scientific community, pointed out that until we can measure a thing, we really know very little about it. Well, how do you measure certainty? How do you measure your degree of confidence that the Bible really is what you believe it to be? Let's attack that in a, in a, in a serious way. If we look at Peter's second letter in the first chapter, he points out that he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now get the picture here. Peter is in the position of having been an eyewitness to all these fantastic things that occur in the gospel period. The transfiguration, the miracles, and, and so forth. But then a couple of verses later, he makes a very strange remark. He says, we have also, in other words, in addition to being eyewitnesses, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. This is a strange phrase he uses. You have some, he says, you have a more sure word of prophecy. You have something in your possession that is more certain than having been an eyewitness like he was. What does he mean by that? Well, that's what we want to explore. The prophetic scriptures, according to J. Barton Payne, which is just one categorization of it, he says there's over 8,000 predictive verses on over almost 2,000 predictions on 700 different matters. And that's just one reckoning. Clearly, the Bible is more than a few prophecy books. Prophecy is littered throughout the entire collection of 66 books. The Old Testament was translated into Greek in 270 B.C. I've mentioned that before, but I want us to anchor on that tonight, to recognize that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, were translated into Greek three centuries before the Gospel period. We don't have to worry for this discussion. We'll ignore who actually wrote the books, when they were actually written. We're going to say we don't care. We know it was in black and white, in hand, in 270 B.C. because it was translated into Greek. Any competent encyclopedia will confirm that for you. Now these 
Old Testament scriptures contain over 300 specifications that detail the coming Messiah. And obviously Jesus Christ fulfilled those. That's what we're going to head into. The crucifixion of Christ was not a tragedy. It was an achievement. He, it was, he was deliberately fulfilling literally 300 specifications. Give you some examples. He was to be born of David's family. That's all through the Old Testament. He was to be born of a virgin. There are several places that allude to that. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would sojourn in Egypt. He would live in Galilee. In fact, specifically in Nazareth. He would be announced like a, by an Elijah-like herald of some kind. Uh, his coming would occasion the massacre of the Bethlehem's children. That's mentioned twice in the Old Testament. He would proclaim a jubilee to the entire world. His mission would include the Gentiles. That's mentioned in Isaiah several places. His ministry would be one of healing. He would teach through the parables, and he would be disbelieved and rejected by the rulers. That's all laid out in the Psalms and in Isaiah, in, in fact, many places. He would make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, according to Zechariah and the Psalms. He'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would be like a smitten shepherd. He would be given vinegar and gall. They would cast lots for his garments. His side would be pierced. Not a bone would be broken that was specified in Exodus, in Numbers, and in the Psalms. Uh, he would die among the malefactors. He would, his dying words were foretold. Literally, Psalm 22 reads like it was dictated, first person singular, as he hung on the cross. He would be buried by a rich man. He would rise from the dead on the third day. That's in several places in the Scripture. And uh, his resurrection would be followed by the destruction of Jerusalem. He himself uh, highlighted that. And I often point out there are 300 of these kinds of specifications, obviously some of them much more technical. And I thought what we'd do is we'd go through each one of them tonight and examine the reference and how it was fulfilled. And you're chuckling, of course, because you know I'm kidding you. I would, but I am going to suggest that we examine eight of them as an exercise because I think the exercise will be useful not just for the eight, but to show you some methodology that you will, uh, I think, will lead to understanding. Let's take the first of the eight. In Micah 5.2, anyone that take, gets Christmas cards sees this on it frequently. In Micah 5.2, we have the passage that Herod's advisors pointed him to when the Magi visited and asked where he was to be born. And they said in Micah 5.2, it says, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. We could actually spend an entire week studying this verse. There's so much hidden in this verse. Not just that he's born in Bethlehem, but that he would rule in Israel. He's never done that yet. He's going to. Whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. That his preexistence from the beginning of eternity. His life didn't start when he became incarnate. He simply took flesh. He was incarnate through eternity past. So there's a lot going on here. But all we're going to focus on for this particular exercise is the location of his birth. It's in Bethlehem. Why is it in Bethlehem? Well, you have to understand the book of Ruth, because that links the line of David to the town of Bethlehem. And there's, that's, there's lots of reasons why that book's so important. Well, if you take the planet Earth and you zero in to the Middle East, and you zero in on Israel, and you're near just south of Jerusalem. As you keep zeroing in on this, you discover there is a town called Bethlehem. It's always been there. 
it has had a population of something less than 7,000 people throughout most of uh, recorded history. So the question is that I want to suggest here, with that background, what is the probability of some person selected at random over the last several thousand years of fulfilling this prophecy? How many of you in this room know someone who's been born in Bethlehem? Some of you are thinking, all your hands should be up. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> Besides Jesus Christ, do you know? Okay. Well, it turns out that uh, you can estimate the probability, roughly, of, of somebody, a stranger, being born in Bethlehem. How would you do that? Well, you'll take the population of Bethlehem as something less than 10,000, which is reasonable. And you'll, let's, at, at any one time you, in history, you'd say the average population might have been something on the order of a billion. So there's a chance of uh, 10 to the 4th divided by 10 to the 9th. In other words, 10, but roughly one chance in 10 to the 5th. You, if you had a random sample of 100,000 people, you have a chance of having one that was born in Bethlehem by this, if they're all randomly distributed. Of course they're not, but that's a good, that's an approximation. Okay, let's take another, you'll see where I'm headed here in a minute. Another one unrelated to this. In Zechariah 9 verse 9, we're told by the prophet, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, upon a colt the foal of an ass. And this, of course, is a famous line to us uh, as you study the Scripture, especially when we were in Daniel. Jesus, at one particular time, allowed himself to be presented to Jerusalem as a king, riding the donkey. He was deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. All right. Uh, what is the probability of someone doing this? How many people have presented themselves as a king to Jerusalem riding a donkey? Well, I, I know of only one, but that's not a hard thing to do. You would think that somebody that was presenting him a skin could ride a donkey. Did they? None that we know of. But if I said the chances of somebody having done that is less than one in a hundred, am I being generous? I think so. You could say probably less than one in a million, because you could probably figure out how many kings have presented themselves to Jerusalem and, and figure out which ones didn't ride a donkey and come down to a much more rare example. But I'll say one in a hundred just to make this simple. You'll see where I'm headed. These will be perfectly adequate. Let's take the third one of the eight. We'll go to Zechariah again. It's an interesting little... Zechariah is full of these little nuggets tucked away in various places. Zechariah 11 verse 12 says, And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Interesting number. Does that ring familiar somewhere? Okay, we all know that Jesus Christ was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. How many people in the last several thousand years have been betrayed for precisely 30 pieces of silver? Well, I don't know of any, but that might, there may be a lot that we don't know about. If I say less than one in a thousand, and I'm being, am I being generous? I think so. I think so. Okay. The probability of less than a thousand is equal to or less than one in a thousand. Okay. Let's take the fourth one. It's right, and it's the next verse, but it's a little different, so I wanted, I wanted to separate some aspects here. The Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver, and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Well, now this one gets a little more complicated. Uh, we're talking how many people that were betrayed for thirty pieces of silver uh, had the money go to a potter 
And all this takes place inside the temple, in the house of the Lord, right? Well, if we go to the, uh, uh, the Scripture, and then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented of himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What's that to us? See thou to that. So Judas gets to the point, after he's done his deal, he's betrayed Christ, he's upset about it, he comes back, he says, I've sinned in that I've betrayed innocent blood. Now, his, what, I love that sentence because who had entered G into Judas? Satan. So by Satan's own words, we declare the innocence of Christ. I think that's, very, that's an interesting ellipsis there. So he cast down the thirty pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. That's all in Matthew 27. You're familiar with that. But now the chief priests have a problem. Chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. There was a prohibition of taking blood money and putting it in the temple. So they got this 30 pieces of silver. They're about to give it away. What do they do with it? Well, they had good CPAs on staff there. Okay. They couldn't put it in the treasury, but they could use it to prepay expenses. See, in other words, they're prepaying expenses. They're reducing their anticipated payables. And the reason is because the temple, when somebody died in the region, for whom there were no heirs, no family, the temple had the problem of dealing with strangers that had died there. That was an exp Every year there's probably a few. They, you can make a guess of X numbers each, each year. And so uh, they had that expense. There was a potter had a field that was really cheap that was available. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. It was a low-cost way of anticipating this expense. It goes on, wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. So that's in the scripture, Matthew 27. Now let's go back and look at the precision of this passage in Zechariah 11.13. The price, 30 pieces of silver. The location of the transaction is in the house of the Lord. And who ends up with the money? The potter who sold the field. All that is included in that little verse in Zechariah. So what's the pro if I said probably one in ten million, I could get, I'm going to say one in a hundred thousand, and I'm being generous. That's pretty precise. Let's take number five. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. This is a very dear one to me personally. I went through a phase when I was a teenager where I was memorizing Bible verses, and every time I came across some reference that was prophetic, I would type the verse on one side of the card and the reference on the other, and I would always carry a few of these with me and try to, I was, I was on a scripture memory kick. Well, I came across this, and oh, there's one, you know, wounds in the hands. I typed up the little card. But in the coming week, as I went through my cards, uh, tried to, the more I tried to memorize this, the more I stumbled, because I realized it didn't make sense. One shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And try as I might, I could not visualize a group of Roman soldiers driving spikes through his wrist into some 12 by 12s or whatever they were, as being in the house of his friends. And so I was puzzled by that. I realized I had the wrong mindset here. In John chapter 20, Remember, they, he had appeared to him that, that among them that Sunday night, and he, Thomas wasn't with them. During that week, they told Thomas, guess who showed up at the prayer meeting last night? 
you know, and they told him what happened. He was very doubtful. He said, but he, that is Thomas, said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of his nails, and put my finger in the print of his nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay. And then what happens, of course, that after eight days, again, his disciples were within. This time, Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And then he said to Thomas, Ooh, this must have been a blow. Thomas, he said, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Be not faithless, but believing. Boy, can you imagine how Thomas must have felt? First of all, he realized that the Lord had overheard that expression. See, the Lord doesn't miss a word. A little child asks, who is little, feeling a little guilty about something, asks his dad, is, is God looking? Does he see everything I do? And the father turned to the, the child and says, God loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. <laughs> well, Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God, I visualize Thomas falling to his knees. Then Jesus said, and be, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and believed. Now when I go back to that verse in Zechariah, you see, it's a whole other thing. What are these wounds in thy hands? Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. What wounded Christ was not the spikes. It was Thomas's unbelief. Ooh. Well, getting back to our little analysis there, how many people, taken at random, have been wounded in their hands in the house of their friends? Well, I have no idea, but if I say less than one in a thousand, am I being generous? Okay. Let's take number six. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a sheep, as, uh, brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. We're taking this from Isaiah 53. You can't go through an exercise like this without taking a few from Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. They're the, so rich with these things. But here he is. He was afflicted, oppressed, afflicted. He opened not his mouth, he made no defense. So the question is, how many prisoners? accused of a capital crime, a death penalty situation, make no defense even though they're innocent. There may have been some in history, frankly. There are apparently, I think on the record, some people who were, may have been killed inappropriately, but made no defense. But if I say less than one in a thousand, am I being generous? I think so. I think so. Okay, let's take another one while we're in 53 here, Isaiah 53. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. So the question is, how many people died among the wicked, and yet were buried with the rich that were not attorneys? <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I've learned over the years of speaking that you're going to unite any audience by picking on the attorneys a little bit. But I didn't mean to be irreverent here. How many people died among the wicked? You, you recognize the intrinsic contradiction within that verse. Well, if I say less than one in a thousand, am I being generous? Surely. Okay, let's take one more. Number eight, the last of the bunch. We'll take one from Psalm 22. Uh, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. This is remarkable, by the way. Because the official form of capital punishment in Israel was stoning. This was written 700 years before crucifixion was invented. It was invented by the Persians and then widely adopted by the Romans. Uh, 
So how many prisoners, taken at random, have died by having their hands and feet pierced? Obviously a lot of people. Millions were crucified by the Romans. But if I said less than one in 10,000, am I being generous? I think so. Okay, so what I've done here, we've concatenated a list of prophecies. Born in Bethlehem, king on a donkey, 30 pieces of silver, temple potter and all that business. Uh, wounds in the hands, no defense though innocent, died with the wicked, a grave with the rich, and uh, crucified. Now the question is, okay, if those are the probabilities of each one of these individually, what's the probability of a particular person having fulfilled all eight of them? Well, that's a dilemma, because now we're dealing with composite probabilities. And for the purpose of this discussion, we'll assume that these things are randomly distributed. Let's talk about, let me give you a little tutorial on composite probabilities. Let's imagine in this audience that we have 60% of you are men and 40% are women. And suppose we blindfolded someone and had him pick one of you at random under some conditions that would make it equally likely to be any of you. Uh, what would be the chance, if he reached out and touched one of you, that it was a female? Well, how would you analyze? Well, if 60% are male and 40% female, he's got a probability of 40% or probability of 0.4 that he encountered a female. You with me so far? Okay. Let me give you a different example. Let's assume that half, uh, that 60% of you are right-handed and 40% are left-handed. Let's assume for this discussion that those are randomly distributed independent of sex. They're just, uh, we got right and left-handed people in that 60-40 in ratio. What's the probability that someone selected randomly would be left-handed? Again, it would be 40%. You're with me so far. Here's the point I'm trying to make. What's the probability, assuming these attributes were randomly distributed, of somebody getting a left-handed female? Well, what you do is you take the one distribution, and you take the other distribution, and you would combine those two distributions, and the ones that met both conditions would be the product of those two probabilities. In other words, 0.4 times 0 0.4, 0 0.16. In other words, if 40% of you are female and 40% are left-handed, the combination would be, there 16% of you would be a, a good estimate of the probability of being a left-handed female. Are you with me? In other words, what I'm trying to get across, a simple way of getting an estimate here is simply take the product of the, the probabilities. Okay, having said all that, probably a 0.16, let's take a look at these eight prophecies. I've made them in powers of 10, so multiplying them just becomes a question of adding up the zeros. So you attend to, a thousand is 10 to the third, and, and, and a hundred is 10 to the second, so a hundred thousand is 10 to the fifth. Two plus three, you with me? So all I need to do is add up the zeros. The probability of one person fitting all these things would be one chance in 10 to the 28th, but I need to work out uh, the, the total people that live. So I take the 100 billion, I'm going to assume 100 billion population as a, as a guess. So my, if I take the combined probabilities 10 to the 28th divided by 10 to the 11th, I now have a, still a very large number, a number by 10 to the 17th. Now if we were in a statistics class in graduate school or whatever, and I was going to try to get across to you what I mean by one chance in 100. What do I mean by that? Well, the way I demonstrate that is I might get a bucket I would put in that bucket 100 silver dollars. I'd take one of them and mark it with some lipstick or nail polish or something, and I'd mix them all up. And the chance of my reaching in there and picking one at random 
is one chance in a hundred of getting the one I marked. You with me? That's a way of demonstrating what I mean by that stochastic, that's a, a stochastic statement. Most people are not familiar with dealing with that. So what I need to do to demonstrate this probability that we're talking about here is I need a bucket that will hold 10 to the 17th silver dollars. That turns out to be a pretty big bucket. That's a lot of silver dollars. In fact, if I want a bucket of 10 to the 17th silver dollars, I need to take the state of Texas, the state of Texas, and fill it with silver dollars, and it'll end up being about two feet deep. That's 10 to the 17th silver dollars. So uh, what I would do then is pick one of you, blindfold you, and put you into a situation where you have an equal likelihood of being exposed to any particular... I, I mix them up in such a way and route you in such a way that you have an equal chance of getting any one of those silver dollars when you, you're going to reach down there with your blindfold and pick one. The chance that you got the one we marked is one chance in 10 to the 17th. Does that get it across? So you're with me so far. You recognize that? You, it's a way of demonstrating just how unlikely that is. But we're not through. I said we had 300 uh, prophecies to deal with. We took eight of them. Let's assume I take another eight. So I have 16 altogether. To spare you the time, we're not going to actually pick up another eight. But if we did, the eight that I would add would be more technical, more precise, less likely. I'm going to assume, for this simple analysis, that the next eight are no less likely than the ones I've already picked. That's a very generous assumption, obviously. So I've got 300 to choose from. The next eight would be more specific, that is less likely than the previous ones. But I'm going to assume no decrease in likelihoods. I'm just going to add eight of an equivalent kind. So now I have 10 to the 28th times 10 to the 28th. We add the exponents, so that's one chance in 10 to the 56th. But again, I subtract out my 10 to the 11th population. So I now I have a 10 to the 45th, okay? So now I, want, I need a bucket of silver dollars that'll hold 10 to the 45th silver dollars. That's a lot of silver dollars. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.